This is World Beyond War, a new podcast. Welcome to episode 38 of the World Beyond War podcast. I'm Mark Elliott Stein, Director of Technology for World Beyond War. And guess what? A podcast interview I had planned for this month had to get postponed, and I almost found myself without an episode to put out here. I thought I'd maybe just improvise a short one by myself and say a few words about an exciting upcoming World Beyond War event with the great songwriter, musician, and peace activist Roger Waters, which is taking place on August 8th, 2022. So if you're listening to this in real time, please check our website for the details and come to this online event. And if you're listening after the fact, I bet you'll be able to find a recording of the webinar on our site. This will be an exciting one for me because I've been listening to Pink Floyd and appreciating Roger Waters' confrontational lyrics since I was a kid. And I started writing down some thoughts for this podcast about how Roger Waters influenced me. And then I realized that my favorite thing to do on this podcast is always to ask my guests how they first became involved in the anti-war cause. And I realized I had never answered that question here myself. It's a really important question. How did we get here? And who influenced us and helped change our minds? Because we all had to find our way here one way or another. And whatever makes any of us decide to work so hard for a cause that really brings endless frustration and disappointment. So I'm going to begin today's episode by answering this question for myself. And then finally, I'm going to read the words I just wrote about Roger Waters, which I just posted to worldbeyondwar.org. Okay, so here goes. Why am I here working for an anti-war organization? And why am I doing this podcast? It's a hard question. If you listen to the previous episodes, you'll hear my guests trying to answer it. One reason it's hard, I think, is that many of us aren't used to calling attention to ourselves. And we're probably highly aware of the ways in which we fail to live up to our own highest ideals. And we don't necessarily always feel great about the life choices we made that brought us to the place that led us to where we are today. Nobody becomes a peace activist because they've skipped joyfully through their entire life. There may be some past trauma there, and this can be hard to confront. It's also hard to talk about the work we do for an important cause when we always feel that we're not doing enough. For me, I realize now I have to answer not one but two questions. Not only why did I become a peace activist, but what the hell took me so long? Because I really was late getting here. Well, I make a living as a website developer. I've been doing this since the 1990s. It's hard work. That's kind of an understatement. And also very rewarding. I began helping out World Beyond War with their website in 2017. At this time, my youngest daughter had graduated from college and my second marriage had broken up and I felt I finally had the freedom to spend some time helping out a grassroots nonprofit organization that would pay me much less than the typical types of large corporations I usually worked for. Before then, I was really mostly hustling to pay the bills, often working multiple website gigs at a time and driving myself crazy doing so. Well, a lot seemed to be changing, not only in my life, but also in my country in 2017. As our first openly fascist president, probably not our first fascist president, but our first openly fascist president began exercising his power. It sickened me that I would be forced to pay taxes to support Trump's evil actions. So it felt good for me to downshift my lifestyle and start earning less money but doing more good for the world in 2017. So let's talk about trauma. The trauma that deeply influenced my twisted path towards anti-war activism was not a personal trauma, but a collective trauma, the Holocaust. I'm Jewish, that is, I am ethnically Jewish, the son of a first-generation father and second-generation mother whose ancestors came to Ellis Island from Eastern Europe. 
My paternal grandmother, Clara, came to Brooklyn as a young girl with her sister Rose from a shtetl called Potok Zloty in what is now Western Ukraine. Yes, the country that is in a vicious war yet again today. And of course, a lot of American Jews are from the region that is once called Galicia and is now part of Ukraine. I remember Clara telling me in her heavy Yiddish accent about Potok Zloty and about the city of Lviv, which she called Lemberg, as it was then a region of German-speaking Austria. She and her sister were the lucky ones in her family, she told me, because her parents and other siblings stayed behind in Europe. They exchanged letters until World War II began, and suddenly the letters stopped. Her entire family was killed in the Holocaust. She wasn't able to tell me much about this, but I've done the best I can to take the available evidence and come up with a guess about what must have happened. I believe they were probably killed by death squads in June or July 1941, immediately following the German invasion of Russia, which was an invasion of Ukraine, since Ukraine was then part of the Soviet Union. It's well known that death squads killed all the Jews they could find in the border regions of western Ukraine during this summer. And that's where my grandmother's family was, in the valley of the Carpathian Mountains, very close to the original border where the Germans first crossed. Being killed by a death squad means they would have never spent time in concentration camps, which explains their complete disappearance. Clara never expressed any emotion to me about this. She was a practical woman who spent her time happily cleaning and cooking for her grandkids whenever we came to visit. The Holocaust made itself most evident to me as a collective trauma whenever I talked to friends or relatives about anti-Semitism or Israel or politics in general. My parents left Brooklyn to raise me out in picket fence suburban Long Island Though people think that sounds wealthy, and it was quite nondescript and middle class, maybe because we lived in a town called Hopog, right in the dead center of Long Island, a place of shopping malls, not beaches, and most of the kids I went to school with were Catholic, Irish, Italian, and German, along with a few Protestants and Jews, and one, yes one, exactly one black kid in my high school. We all had our different collective traumas. As a kid, I read a lot of books about World War II and about the Holocaust. I wanted to understand. I was also a history buff, and still am. The main thing I sensed when I heard my older Jewish relatives explain why they thought the Holocaust happened, or what could be done about the endless agonizing war between Israel and Palestine, the main thing is that I just didn't think they had the answers. Their perspective seemed angry but thoughtless, reflexive, and morally limited. I became a philosophy major when I went to college at Albany State in upstate New York, and my main focus was ethics. The questions asked by the great ethical philosophers, Plato, Aristotle, Immanuel Kant, the existentialists Soren Kierkegaard and Friedrich Nietzsche, and Jean-Paul Sartre. These philosophers asked some great questions, but after a couple of years of this, I realized I would soon need to make a living, so I switched to a computer science curriculum, and when I graduated, the only job I could get with my mediocre grades was through nepotism via my stepfather at a military contractor in Hicksville, Long Island. When I think back to this, I really wonder what I could have been thinking taking a job like this, because I already knew enough to be anti-war. I suppose I had a view of the United States as a benevolent force for peace in the world, and I guess I thought capitalism was a system that could be sustainable, and I really hadn't learned enough about the world just yet. I could not stand working for a military contractor and left in less than a year, but I soon ended up moving to New York City and getting married and working on Wall Street, writing financial software for one of the world's largest banks. And I also hated this workplace. 
I suppose I justified working on Wall Street by convincing myself I was learning about the world from the belly of the beast. And really, I did learn a lot about how corrupt the beast is on Wall Street. And in the years since, I've also worked for several different types of corporations and also for the U.S. federal government during the Obama administration, where I built websites for a few different agencies during the time that the Obama administration was making a good faith effort to use open source software. I wanted to believe that good things were going on in the federal government when Obama was president, but I also saw an incredible amount of corruption and mediocre management and waste and grift while working for these federal agencies. I'm sorry to say this, and maybe that'll be a story for another podcast episode, because I'm ready to name names, <laughs> but okay, back to my focus. At World Beyond War, we talk a lot about myths, the myth that there can ever be a good war. Among many American Jews who grew up as I did with the generational trauma of the Holocaust, there's always been a belief that the United States and England saved the Jews of Europe, and that red, white, and blue capitalist freedom is the ultimate political system, the only valid political system. I'm sorry to say that not only many American Jews, but many Americans, period, seem to still believe this today. This blind-eyed patriotism becomes all the more troubling when the subject turns to Israel, where there is obviously generational and collective trauma and a whole lot of paranoia and hatred, just getting worse year after year. During the 1990s, I became father of a delightful bunch of kids, and I became really involved in writing and poetry, and especially the online literary scene, because I was now developing websites as my main gig, and I founded a website called Literary Kicks, using the pen name Levi Asher, which is a name some people still call me by today. We focused on stuff like beat generation, alternative literature, slam poetry, etc. This kept my attention away from politics during the years before September 11th, 2001. I guess there were some moments during the 1990s when I really, truly believed our planet was on the trajectory it should be on, and that the world was getting better and better and cleaner and fairer, and that there would be fewer wars in the future. I really wasn't looking too closely at anything at that time, I guess. After September 11th and the absolute disaster of the Iraq War and the Bush presidency, I started turning my attention back to questions of politics and ethics. I was reading more and more of the great pacifist writers, Dorothy Day, Mahatma Gandhi, Martin Luther King, Lev Tolstoy. I got involved in Occupy, and I followed WikiLeaks and Edward Snowden, and I became more aware of climate issues and police abuse and Black Lives Matter. One book called Human Smoke, The Beginnings of World War II and the End of Civilization by Nicholson Baker made a big difference for me by puncturing the specific myth that Winston Churchill and Franklin D. Roosevelt ever tried to help the Jews of Europe. In fact, this book helped me understand the U.S.-U.K. strategy of defeating Germany slowly over several years with a starvation blockade and constant aerial bombings was a death sentence for the millions of Jews who would be trapped in this hellscape. This book makes it clear that the Holocaust could have been averted in many ways, and that the combined nations of Europe bypassed many opportunities to de-escalate after World War I, which would have saved not only 6 million Jews, but 50 million human beings. World War II was a disaster that did not need to happen, neither in Asia nor in Europe, just as World War I had also been a disaster that did not need to happen. At this time, I was also reading several books about the Armenian Genocide, the Cambodian Genocide, the Genocide in Rwanda, and was stunned to learn how much these genocides were all motivated by military goals. I began to understand that genocide does not happen because people hate each other. 
A genocide only happens because a society is already torn to shreds by a war and is always carried out in a military fashion. War does not prevent genocide. War causes genocide. War is genocide. And war always plants the seeds for future genocide. Once I began to put the pieces together and understand this, I realized that I needed to become an anti-war activist. There is no better way to honor the victims of genocide in my own family. The causality between genocide and war needs to be better understood. I sometimes say in a sort of jokey way that people can go on hating their neighbors for years, but they will not murder their neighbors. Not in a normal society. It does not happen. Genocide happens after civil society collapses from a war. Every genocide in modern history was the result of a war that created its conditions. Today in Ukraine, we see the same delusion as foreign countries pour weapons in like throwing gasoline at a fire. And of course, the result is more war, more hatred, more genocide, more horror, more war crime, more hopelessness. Wars must be ended through negotiation, not by sending more weapons. This really should be basic, and it's so horrible to see it happening again in Europe, in Ukraine. World War III, it looks like to me. I can't believe it's happening before our eyes. Back during the Obama years, while I was working in frustration at various federal agencies, I started using my blog Litkicks as an outlet to write about politics. And I began a weekend series with a focus on ethical philosophy called Philosophy Weekend, which actually got pretty popular and breathed some new life into my website during these years. I wrote about Buddhism, Carl Jung, William James, why Ayn Rand is wrong about everything, and I found myself writing a lot about pacifism. The more I wrote about pacifism, the more I felt like a pacifist. So, it, you know, it's a funny thing I've learned as a blogger and as a writer in general that sometimes when you write an article intended to persuade others, by the act of writing it, you sometimes end up mainly persuading yourself. So the article is not really a failure. You persuaded one person yourself. Um, I'm sort of kidding because I, I do know a lot of people agreed with and liked my blog posts about pacifism, but I do know that my own interest really peaked as a result of writing about it every week. And this is actually what led me in September 2017 to run down to Washington, D.C. and check out a conference by a group I'd never heard of called Worlds Beyond War. When I think back on this whole trajectory, all I can say is I'm really glad I went to the No War 2017 conference because it's really fulfilling to work with other people on a cause we believe in. Showing up there was like opening a door, and the door opened very suddenly and happily for me. This is why every episode of this podcast begins with the sound of a door opening. I wanted to create a little audio intro that felt like opening a door into the world of anti-war activism. I hope this is a door many people will walk through. So that's my story of how I became a peace activist. I'd like to now conclude this episode by reading the blog post about Roger Waters, which I just wrote for the World Beyond War website. Thanks for listening to my story. First, we'll hear a minute from Roger's opera, Sayera, which takes place during the French Revolution, and which I'll mention again in the brief article you're about to hear. Thanks for bearing with me on the most me-focused episode of this interview podcast. Thanks for allowing me to interview myself. I hope you'll enjoy this article about Roger Waters, and I hope you'll show up for our webinar next week, if you can. And this podcast will be back to normal with another interview next month. Thank you.
Roger Waters and the Lines on the Map, July 31st, 2022. World Beyond War is hosting a webinar next week with the great songwriter and anti-war activist Roger Waters. A week later, Roger's This Is Not A Drill concert tour will be coming to New York City. Brian Garvey told us about the Boston show, and I'll be there, tabling with our partner organization, Veterans for Peace. If you come to the concert, please find me at the Veterans for Peace table and say hi. Being the tech director for World Beyond War has given me a chance to meet some of the exceptional people who years before helped me find my own path to peace activism. During a time in my life that I was not involved with any movement, I happened to read books by Nicholson Baker and Medea Benjamin that sparked ideas in my head that eventually led me to look for ways to get personally involved in the pacifist cause. It was a thrill for me to interview both of them on the World Beyond War podcast and tell them how much their works had motivated me. Helping to host a webinar with Roger Waters will take this to a new level for me. It was not years ago, but decades ago, that I first pulled a black vinyl disc from a black album cover depicting a beam of light, a prism, and a rainbow, and heard a soft and sorrowful voice singing these words. Forward he cried from the rear, and the front ranks died. The generals sat, and the lines on the map moved from side to side. Pink Floyd's 1973 album Dark Side of the Moon is a musical journey into a troubled private mind, a tour de force about alienation and insanity. The album opens with an invitation to breathe, as swirling sounds depict the madness of a busy and uncaring world. Voices and heartbeats and footsteps fade in and out, airports, clocks, but the deep strains of the music pull the listener in past the noise and chaos, and the first half of the record ends with a respite of otherworldly, angelic voices crying out in harmonic empathy on the track called Great Gig in the Sky. On the second side of the album, we return to the roiling troubles of an angry world. The clinking coins of money segue into the anti-war anthem, Us and Them, where the generals sit and move the lines on the map from side to side. There is a sense of stress so great that descent into madness feels inevitable. Yet as brain damage breaks into the final track, Eclipse, we begin to sense that the voice singing to us is not insane at all. It's the world that has gone insane, and these songs invite us to find our sanity by going inward, by trusting our instincts and ignoring the banality of the mob, by accepting our alienation from a society that we don't know how to save, and taking refuge in the beauty of art and music and solitary, truthful living. Often cited as Roger Waters' most complete masterpiece as a songwriter and musician, The remarkable album, The Dark Side of the Moon, appears to be about insanity, but on closer look is about the insanity of the outside world and about the hard shells of alienation and anguish that some of us may need to form around ourselves to avoid getting subsumed by the urge to conform. It's no accident that the album paraphrases Henry David Thoreau, a lone voice against conformity from another time and a different land, hanging on in quiet desperation is the English way. This album was important to me as a kid discovering music, and I'm still finding new meaning in it. I've come to realize that it's not just the song Us and Them, but the entire album that highlights the severe collision with polite, conventional society that eventually forces every emerging political activist to choose a ground to stand on, to toughen up against the endless pressures of depressed defeatism, to commit completely to the causes 
that don't allow us to choose halfway. I didn't become a political activist when I became a Pink Floyd fan as a teenager. But I realize today how much Roger Waters' songs helped me forge my own gradual path towards a strange and alienating personal transition. And it's not just explicitly political songs like Us and Them that helped me find my path. The underground roots of Roger Waters' first band go farther back than many realize. Pink Floyd would become very popular through the 1970s and 1980s. Yet the band began playing gigs in England in 1965 and were a sensation in the formative early days of 1960s swinging London, where they were a favorite of the artsy crowd that listened to beat poetry and hung around the now legendary Indica bookstore, where John Lennon and Yoko Ono would meet. This was the 1960s culture Pink Floyd emerged from. As one of the first and most original prog experimental bands of the classic rock era, early Pink Floyd held down the scene in London during the same exciting years that the Grateful Dead were forming the scene with Ken Kesey in San Francisco, and the Velvet Underground were blowing minds in New York City with Andy Warhol's exploding plastic inevitable. None of these seminal bands were explicitly political, but it's a key point that this was only because they didn't have to be. The scenes they provided music for were deeply enmeshed in the anti-war movements of the time. Pink Floyd's London youth scene was thoroughly dedicated to nuclear disarmament and anti-colonialism, and the corresponding youth scene in USA was learning from a groundbreaking protest movement for civil rights and building, also with Martin Luther King's sharp guidance, a massive new popular movement against the immoral war in Vietnam. It was during the heady days of the 1960s that many of the seeds of serious protest movements that still live today were planted. Like the early Grateful Dead and the Velvet Underground, Swinging London's version of Pink Floyd laid out a thematic landscape deeply oriented in the dreamy subconscious, composing songs that seemed to aim for a psychological territory between wakefulness and sleep. Roger Waters took over leadership of the band following Sid Barrett's sad fade into actual madness. And Dark Side of the Moon vaulted Waters and his musical partners David Gilmour, Richard Wright, and Nick Mason to massive international success, though every member of the band seemed admirably disinterested in the culture of celebrity and fame. Waters transformed his band for the punk rock era in 1977 with the aggressive and Orwellian Animals, followed by The Wall, a psychological rock opera whose massive success and popularity would equal that of Dark Side of the Moon. Has any rock songwriter ever laid bare his own flawed soul the way Roger Waters does in The Wall? It's about a morose rock star who becomes wealthy, spoiled, and drugged out, emerging as a literal fascist leader, haranguing his fans from the concert stage with racial and gender insults. This was Roger Waters' ironic self-portrait, because, as he explained to the few interviewers he would talk to, he had come to despise his own rock star persona and the power it gave him. Worse, the fame he tried to avoid had completely alienated him from the people who came to his concerts and enjoyed his creations. Pink Floyd could not last much longer with this level of heated self-evisceration, and the band's final great album in 1983 was virtually a Roger Waters solo work, The Final Cut. This album was an anti-war statement from start to finish howling out against Great Britain's foolish and cruel short war in 1982 against Argentina over the Malvinas. 
bitterly calling out Margaret Thatcher and Menachem Begin and Leonid Brezhnev and Ronald Reagan by name. Waters' outspoken political activism gradually began to define all his work, including his solo albums and even the opera about the French Revolution that he composed in 2005, Sayera. In the spring of 2021, I attended a small rally at the downtown New York City courts for the courageous lawyer Stephen Donziger, who has been unjustly punished for exposing Chevron's environmental crimes in Ecuador. There was not a big crowd at this rally, but I was pleased to see Roger Waters there standing alongside his friend and ally and briefly taking the mic to say a few words about the Donziger case, along with the equally brave Susan Sarandon and Marianne Williamson. Stephen Donziger eventually spent a shocking 993 days in jail for daring to exercise free speech in criticism of a corporation as powerful as Chevron. I don't know whether or not Roger Waters has ever been jailed for his activism, but he surely has been punished in the public eye. When I mention his name to some of my friends, even musically knowledgeable friends who understand the level of his genius, I hear ridiculous accusations like, Roger Waters is anti-Semitic, a complete canard fabricated to damage him by the same kinds of powerful forces who pulled strings for Chevron to put Stephen Donziger in jail. Of course, Roger Waters is not anti-Semitic, though he has been brave enough to speak out loudly for Palestinians suffering under Israeli apartheid, as we all must if we are willing to face reality, because this apartheid is a devastating injustice that needs to end. I don't know what Roger Waters will talk about in our webinar on August 8th, though I have seen him in concert many times and have a pretty good idea what kind of kick-ass concert he'll put on on August 13th in New York City. The summer of 2022 is a hot, tense time in the United States of America. Our government seems more feckless and corrupt than ever as we slip and slide into proxy wars motivated by corporate profits and fossil fuel addiction. Frightened and depressed citizens of this broken government fortify themselves with military weapons, swelling the ranks of paramilitary groups. As our police forces transform themselves into military battalions aiming weapons at their own people. As our stolen Supreme Court initiates a new horror, the criminalization of pregnancy and healthcare choice. The death count in Ukraine is over 100 human beings a day as I write this and the same donors and profiteers who pushed that terrible proxy war seem to be trying to start a new humanitarian disaster in Taiwan in order to gain economic advantage over China. The generals are still sitting, moving the lines on the map from side to side. Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast. Our podcast is now available on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Don't forget to give us a rating. Visit worldbeyondwar.org to learn more about the social and environmental impacts of the war machine and get involved in the movement for a world beyond war.